Imagine, if you will, that you live in the polis of Athens in the 400s BCE. One evening, as the sun is setting, you step outside of your home. There is a task that you, as the head of the household, must perform. You had intended to do this earlier, and indeed every other time you have done it. It was in the late afternoon. But you had been held up. You glance toward the Acropolis, the temple-covered hill at the center of the city. You see the temple to Athena, at this time made of wood, bathed in the golden light of the last rays of the setting Mediterranean sun, and you wish that it was your destination. But you are not going to the Acropolis this evening. Nobody is. You look back to the deserted road and keep walking. A chill runs down your spine, whether from a cold gust of wind or your own nerves, you do not know. You pull your long woolen himatian cloak tighter around yourself, and you walk faster. The light is fading quickly, and you are barely able to see when you reach your destination. A small space where your street meets another. At this crossroad there stands a small statue of a woman. She has three bodies and three heads, each facing a different direction. In her hands she holds torches. You stumble on a rock as you approach the shrine, wishing those torches were real and could give off light. But you also know that it is for the best that they do not, as on this night, when the moon is dark, the light of torches attracts other things. Things that are only free on this night. You pull out your offering, a leak from your garden. You set it down, as you have many times before, at the feet of the goddess, beside your neighbor's offerings to her. Quickly, you turn and begin to march back to your home, repeating to yourself the one rule of this ritual after you place your offering at the crossroads. Return to your home for the night. Do not look back. No matter what you hear, or what you think you hear, do not look back at that little statue at the end of the street. The sound of a howling dog sends you into a run. Whether one of your neighbor's pets, a wild canine beyond the city, or one of the great black hounds that follow the goddess, it does not matter. From behind you you hear a loud groan. It could be an old olive tree that caught a gust of wind or it could be the moan of one of the unquiet, forgotten dead. You sprint back to your home in a panic and close the door behind you without looking back outside. You do not sleep well that night, your dreams haunted by the things that may or may not have been behind you on the road. But in the morning, all is forgotten. You go about your business the following day, and when you pass by that little statue at the crossroad, you notice that all of the offerings are gone, as they are every month. You make a mental note to never perform the ritual that late again. Welcome to a special episode of In Case You Mythed It, the podcast that talks about the myths and legends that you probably didn't hear in school. I'm your host, Carl Gage. As you may have guessed from that introduction, this will be a bit of a different type of episode. This is one of the more historical-themed style of episodes that will make up the Patreon-exclusive episodes. This one is free for all listeners so that you can get a feel for some of the type of stuff that will be on the exclusives. With that out of the way, let's begin. What you heard at the top of the show was a description of a ritual practiced in and around Athens called Hecate's Depnon. Depnon, meaning feast or large meal, and was the name of the ancient Greeks gave to the largest meal of the day, eaten in early evening, much like dinner. The ritual consisted of leaving a food offering at a shrine that was either positioned just outside the home's front door, or at a nearby crossroads. It was performed once each lunar month, specifically on the final night of said month, when there was no visible sliver of moon. 
All of these things, the dark moon, the crossroads, doorways, and the ritual itself, were considered sacred to one goddess in particular, Hecate. Hecate is a strange figure in ancient Greek myth and religion. There are no narrative stories about her, and what references to her in writing that we do have are cryptic and contradict one another. If you have heard her name, you likely heard it in connection with her role as a goddess of witchcraft, necromancy, ghosts, magic, black dogs, snakes, and poisons. But this does not appear to have always been the way that the Greeks thought of her. In this episode, I would like to explore the many different roles that Hecate has had throughout the ages, from household goddess to dark goddess to even modern witchcraft religions who hold her as representative of the crone aspect of divinity. While there is evidence for her worship dating back quite a long way, the earliest written reference to Hecate comes from the 700s BCE. In his work tracing the lineages and stories of the Greek pantheon, Theogony, the poet Hesiod goes on a rather unwarranted tangent about why Hecate is so great. For nearly 50 lines, he sings the praises of the goddess, the longest continuous description of her in the ancient world that survives to our time. I will read it here from the translation by Hugh Evelyn White, which is available online at Perseus Tufts. The text is as follows. And Asteria conceived and bore Hecate, whom Zeus the son of Kronos honored above all. He gave her splendid gifts, to have a share of the earth and the unfruitful sea. She received honor also in starry heaven, and is honored exceedingly by the deathless gods. For to this day, whenever any one of men on earth offers ritual sacrifices and prays for favor according to custom, he calls upon Hecate. Great honor comes full easily to him whose prayers the goddess receives favorably, and she bestows wealth upon him, for the power surely is with her. For as many as were born of earth and ocean, amongst all these she has her due portion. The son of Kronos did her no wrong, nor took anything away of all that was her portion among the former titan gods. But she holds, as the division was at the first from the beginning, privilege both in earth and in heaven and in sea. Also, because she is an only child, the goddess receives not less honor, but much more still, for Zeus honors her. Whom she wills, she greatly aids and advances. She sits by worshipful kings in judgment, and in the assembly whom she will is distinguished among the people. And when men arm themselves for battle that destroys men, then the goddess is at hand to give victory and grant glory readily to whom she will. Good is she also when men contend at the games, for there too the goddess is with them and profits them. And he who by might and strength gets the victory wins the rich prize easily with joy, and brings glory to his parents. And she is good to stand by horsemen, whom she will. And to those whose business is in the gray, discomfortable sea, and who pray to Hecate and the loud-crashing earth-shaker Poseidon, easily the glorious goddess gives great catch, and easily she takes it away as soon as seen, if so she will. There is good in the buyer with Hermes to increase the stock. The droves of kin of kine and wide herds of goats and flocks of fleecy sheep, if she will, she increases from a few, or makes many to be less. So then, albeit her mother's only child, she is honored amongst all the deathless gods. And the son of Kronos made her a nurse of the young, who after that day saw with their eyes the light of all-seeing dawn. So from the beginning she is a nurse of the young, and these are her honors. From there, Theogony goes back to discussing its actual subject, the story of the gods. Hecate is not mentioned again, 
though the large section that I have just read indicates that she was quite important, at least in Hesiod's time and place, and that she was notably not a dark goddess of witchcraft. Instead, the Hecate of Theogony appears to be immensely powerful, having some dominion over everything, and very involved in the political and economical affairs of mortals, in the way that Zeus himself is said to be. The description of Hecate and Theogony is one entirely unconnected to the later versions of her, and is only recognizable in that she bears the same name. There has been a lot of debate over the years among scholars as to whether or not the Hecate of Theogony is the same deity as later versions. One of the more interesting aspects of Hecate is that she is generally not believed to be a native Greek goddess, but rather an imported one. Evidence for this importation of her can be inferred from a few different directions, though they are, of course, vague, as is everything about her. The first of these is that she does not appear among the deities listed in Linear B, the writing system used by Mycenaean Greeks, centuries before Hecate, or before Hesiod. Among the gods that do appear in Linear B are several familiar ones, like Zeus, Hera, Ares, Athena, and even Dionysus, all under slightly different names. Aphrodite is also notably absent, as Aphrodite herself was an imported goddess. We know that worship of different deities was imported all the time in the ancient world. The second detail about Hecate that allows us to infer her as a foreign import is the fact that her main cult site, that is the place where her largest temple was and where her followers were most numerous, was in Anatolia, at a site called Lagina, in the southwest of modern-day Turkey, where she had a whole temple dedicated to her. From these two pieces of evidence, among others, some scholars have theorized that Hecate was first worshipped by the Carians, a people of southwest Anatolia, and that her cult spread into the Greek-speaking world through contact with Greek settlers along the western shore of Anatolia. If this is the case, then this may explain why Hesiod seemed to put such a focus on her, as Hesiod's father is believed to have originally been from the coast of Anatolia, specifically Cumae, in Aeolus, a region near the island of Lesbos, before settling in Boeotia, where Hesiod was born. It is further theorized, then, that Hesiod's mention of Hecate is less a poet referencing a well-known goddess, and more Hesiod using his poem to grow the reputation of a possibly little-known goddess in the region where he lived. Hecate's next appearance in ancient literature comes in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, written by an anonymous poet sometime after the life of Homer, though attributed to him by the ancients and using the same poetic dialect that his epics used. The Hymn to Demeter is our chief source for the myth about the abduction of Persephone by Hades, and as such is mostly concerned with that story. Hecate makes something like a cameo appearance in the hymn, though this brings a few details that differ from Hesiod's description. She is introduced as tender-hearted Hecate, bright-coiffed, daughter of Perseus, who heard the screams of Persephone from her cave, as the young goddess was abducted by Hades. Hecate and Hyperion are the only witnesses to the kidnapping, and Hecate, holding a torch, meets Demeter to assist in finding Persephone. Hecate's presence in a cave is remarked upon by some scholars as being indicative of her already being associated with the moon. This would make her inability to see the abduction make sense, as it happened in the day and thus the moon was not out, while Helios, the sun, was the other witness. At the same time, however, Hecate is clearly described as coming out to meet Demeter holding a torch, a symbol strongly associated with her. And at the end of the hymn, Hecate is said to be the guide for Persephone when she enters and exits the underworld, thus giving Hecate, or thus tying Hecate to the underworld. 
it is this association between Hecate, Demeter, and Persephone, and their connection with the underworld that explains Hecate's inclusion in one of the most ancient and important rituals in all of Greece, the Eleusinian Mysteries. The Eleusinian Mysteries were a set of rituals that took place annually at the town of Eleusis, modern-day Elefsina, near Athens, and what precisely happened there is, well, a mystery. The details of the rituals are almost entirely unknown, despite how popular they were, as open discussion of the details were punishable by death. What we do know about the mysteries is that they revolved around the story of Persephone and Demeter, as outlined in the hymn, and they included Hecate in some capacity. While we don't know everything that happened to participants, we do know that it was a very affecting experience, one that apparently stayed with them for life. Philosophers of the time, like Plato, said that initiates into the mysteries came out with a completely different view of themselves and the world, and that they no longer feared death. The mysteries, it is believed, gave some form of proof to their participants that they were not mortal beings, but immortal souls temporarily encased in mortal shells, and that as Persephone returns from the underworld, so too would their souls return from death. The Hecate of Eleusis, who guides Persephone, can be viewed as a psychopomp, a spirit that guides souls into death with kindness. We can see that while she maintains her role as teacher and protector of youth, Hecate's associations with the heavens and the sea, so important to Hesiod, have now been largely forgotten in favor of her connections with the underworld. The talk of eternal life after death and the connection with Hecate and the underworld brings me to the next evolution of the goddess, if you can call it that. Hecate was a major goddess in the religion of Orphism, this is, frankly, a complicated subject and one that I do not have time to go into here. So, to vastly oversimplify, Orphism was a branch of ancient Greek religion that claimed the musician hero Orpheus, having returned from the underworld, spread the message of what he had seen there, and that these things differed from the more mainstream Greek myths. Just as an aside, as if there wasn't enough deviation in the stories to begin with. As such, the followers of Orpheus, or Orphix, carried on his message and created their own parallel versions of Greek myths. This is important because Orphism was not based upon the certainty of an afterlife, but rather was a religion of mysticism and salvation. While the Eleusinian mysteries focused upon the certainty of the fate of mortals, Orphism told of a different fate, that through an ascetic and pious lifestyle, adherents could gain access to an afterlife of bliss among the heroes of the past, Orpheus included while everybody else's souls would be reincarnated for eternity until they understood the suffering of their main di deity, Dionysus. Orphism had an impact on history much greater than you would expect. The mystical aspects of the religion can be found in the works of Plato and Pythagoras, and from there eventually the occultism and, of the Renaissance and beyond. With that tangent done, it is now that I bring us to the subject at hand. Hecate was rather prominent in Orphism, and indeed the second longest reference to her in the ancient world that I know of comes in the form of the Orphic Hymn to Hecate, written in the 400s or 500s BCE, a few centuries after Hesiod. I shall read it here from the translation by Apostolos Athanasakis. Lovely Hecate of the roads and crossroads I invoke, in heaven, on earth, and in the sea, saffron cloaked, tomb spirit, reveling in the souls of the dead, daughter of Perseus, haunting deserted places, delighting in dear, nocturnal, dog-loving, monstrous queen, devouring wild beasts, ungirt, of repelling countenance. 
you herder of bulls, queen and mistress of the whole world, leader, nymph, mountain-roaming nurturer of youth, maiden, I beseech you to come to these holy rites, ever with joyous heart and ever favoring the ox-herd. As a tomb spirit who haunts deserted places and has a repelling countenance, the Orphic Hecate is clearly a more chthonic deity than Hesiod's great goddess. These various aspects of her appear to have become mixed up or homogenized by the time of the Classical Era, from 500 BC to the death of Alexander in the 300s BC. Unfortunately, I will have to leave you with a cliffhanger regarding the rest of her history, as this episode has become incredibly long. The second part, covering Hecate and her worship from the Classical period through Hellenistic, Roman, and even Byzantine, up to her depictions in modern history and her modern worship, will probably go on up on the Patreon for those interested in hearing more about this complex figure. Until next time, listeners.